Welcome to the reading of the Quad City Times for Tuesday, February the 20th, 2024. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of people with print disabilities. Your readers today are Doug Kretzinger and myself, Scott Splavik. Now here's Doug with our first story. Quad City Times front page. Convenience stores reopen. Renovated stores and gas stations closed in 2023. Written by Sarah Watson. Six Davenport convenience stores and gas stations that shuttered abruptly last year because of a leasing dispute are set to reopen this month under a different management company. Two convenience-only stores in Davenport under the name The Good Spot were scheduled to open Monday at 2805 Telegraph Road and 1732 North Marquette Street, according to a news release from In Commercial a Chicago-based real estate investment group. Four gas stations with convenience stores are planned to open February 26 at 201 West 53rd Street, 1136 East Locust Street, 303 West Locust Street, and 3624 West Locust Street, according to the news release. Sinclair Oil will operate the fuel pumps, and the convenience stores will reopen under the name The Gas Spot. In total, the news release stated ICC Motor Fuel 1 LLC owns 10 locations in Davenport that, quote, will be undergoing rebranding and remodeling with the remaining slated to open later this year, end quote. After the gas stations and convenience stores closed abruptly in September, community members and city council members took notice. Then, in January, new beer licenses for nine closed gas stations appeared on the Davenport City Council agenda for approval, the first sign of movement from the closed stations in months. The new license holder was listed as LPT Retail Management Services, LLC. That limited liability company does not own the gas station real estate properties, according to county assessor records. In the early months of 2023, the gas station's properties changed ownership from Quick Shop Inc. to other limited liability companies, county property records show. By February, each gas station's listed owner was a limited liability company with similar formatting and registered to one of two Chicago or Memphis addresses. In the following months, several of the Davenport gas stations changed signage from Quick Shop to Sinclair. Then, in September, Storm Lake-based brew oil ceased operations at 15 gas station locations in Cedar Rapids, Hiawatha, Eldridge, and Davenport, the company said in an October news release. Because of a breakdown in lease renewal negotiations, the company said it operated the convenience stores under a lease but did not own them. According to the release, company then donated leftover inventory to area food banks. Joe Kelly, a spokesperson for Brew Oil, told the Quad City Times in mid-January that Brew Oil was not involved with these stores anymore. The in-commercial news release stated that, quote, The locations were closed in September of 2023 to make way for new management and 
location upgrades. These sites needed repairs to coolers and HVAC systems, extensive cleaning, and brand new POS point of sale equipment and software. The news release uh, stated and went on to say, each store has hired all new staff with about six employees per location and the stores have fresh merchandise and new product offerings. Our next article is entitled, Former Employees Threaten Lawsuit. They are upset with released information. It's written by Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Two former City of Davenport employees are asking the courts to slow a decision on whether the city can release a demand letter from its former administrator that led her to $1.6 million payout. The two former administrative employees, Tiffany Thorndike and Samantha Torres, filed a motion to intervene in in Scott County Court on Sunday evening in the case. The motion was made on a suit the city has filed asking the court to to determine if it must release former city administrator Corey Spiegel's demand letter in an open records request. Their motion argues that a decision on the city's request would circumvent a potential lawsuit by the two employees against the city. The two employees say the city admitted to mistakenly releasing their demand letters, which their filing says included extremely sensitive personal health information and other humiliating details of their lives, the details of which the city has has solicited from them. The two employees sent demand letters in late August 2023 outlining harassment they said they experienced from elected officials and physical and mental health care sought in response. Each employee received between $100,000 and $200,000 and signed a separation agreement. The city council held a special meeting to remove then 7th Ward Alderman Derek Cornett in response to their and Spiegel's concerns. The two administrative assistance letters were released as part of a records request. The city legal department said at the time the letters were mistakenly released unredacted. In Sunday's court filing, Thorndike and Torres alleged that they were informed by the city that these letters would be treated as personal information in confidential personnel records and would not be released to the public. They add that a city employee responsible for reviewing, assessing, and disseminating the released documents had told the employees he messed up during his review and accidentally released information the city had affirmatively determined it would keep confidential. Thorndike and Torres say in response they issued a demand letter with a deadline of February 16th for the city to respond after which time the two employees would file suit. The city's request for declaratory judgment was filed February 14th. Finish off the front page uh, explaining a picture, number one, that's here at the very beginning. It says, final boom for old I-74 bridge. And what you see is the river, about the bottom eighth of the picture is the water. And then from that point up, all you see is a cloud of smoke and a bunch of debris floating through. So that is the end. That was on uh, the bridge morning of Sunday, February 18th. It was expected to be the final time the company used explosives uh, as to dismantle the old I-74 bridge. It looks like they've done it. Also on the front page, this story, Simon and Garfunkel duo appeared in 1967 show. 
and it's entitled Davenport Concert Came One Year Before Mrs. Robinson, written by Gannon Hannevold. Tragically, too many of these Timeless Tickets stories so far have featured performers who aren't with us anymore. Many of them, Tina Turner, Johnny Cash, Louis Armstrong, had long lives with performances well into their later years. Others, like Buddy Holly and Patsy Cline, died young, not long after their visits to the Quad Cities. But Simon and Garfunkel are still around. They're not together as a duo, but Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, each 82 years old today, are alive in 2024 to receive their flowers. Luckily for the Quad Cities, we got to show the uber-talented pair some appreciation when the duo was still together. They came to Davenport's Masonic Temple on February 26, 1967. At the time, Simon and Garfunkel were already well-known folk rockers. The year before, The Sound of Silence, the de facto title track from their fourth full-length album together, was the number one song in the United States. It remained on the Billboard Hot 100 list well into the winter of 66, so when the duo came to town in 67, that haunting Hello Darkness was still echoing in many fans' heads. But the Simon and Garfunkel that came to Davenport was still comfortably a year away from the peak of fame. It wasn't until 10 months later that The Graduate released in theaters. The romantic drama soundtracked by Simon and Garfunkel catapulted them into superstardom with, quote, Mrs. Robinson, end quote. Yet another number one hit in 68. Sunday evening at 8 p.m., Simon and Garfunkel's February 67 Masonic Temple show was announced earlier that month at the end of a console concert hosted by another New York City folk act, the Love and Spoonful. The Love and Spoonful was arguably even bigger than feb that February. They were riding a wave of top 10 hits in the previous year, and their Valentine's Day show at Masonic Temple was a borderline riot according to Times Democrat reviewer Shirley Davis. The 4,000 in attendance cheered at the announcement of Simon and Garfunkel coming two weeks later. Simon and Garfunkel's show was scheduled for 8 p.m. on Sunday, the 26th of February, 1967. Tickets cost between $2.50 and $4.50 and sold at various record stores and bookstores around the QC. The week before the concert, Simon and Garfunkel appeared on Quad City screens on the Songmakers, a TV telecast with performances by some of the music industry's biggest acts. Quote, viewers who imagine today's tunes are the products of rock-brained idiots may be surprised by the intelligent comments of singers Simon and Garfunkel. In uh, quote, wrote a nationally syndicated preview of the program published in the Times Democrat on February 24. The day after their show at Masonic Temple, Simon and Garfunkel released At the Zoo for the first time, a single that was later returned on 1968's Bookends and peaked at number 16 on the Hot 100. In the paper on February 26, 1967, one story reigned supreme. In New England, a 35-year-old Albert DeSalvo, the alleged Boston Strangler, finally surrendered to police. Further inside the Times Democrat, an article from Business Week pondered a name change from the Quad Cities to the Quint Cities. With the emergence of East Moline about 10 years ago, the existing Tri-Cities, Moline, Rock Island, and Davenport became the Quad Cities, it read. Now even Quad is a misnomer. Bettendorf, whose 
population has tripled in the past 15 years from 5,132 to 17,241, is considered a fifth member. It went on to note that the Quad Cities have bonded through the lessening of inner-city rivalries. The writer predicted that the Quad Cities were a preview of the great interurban complexes of the future. In the years after Simon and Garfunkel's Quad Cities visit, their trajectory continued upward. They split in 1970, just as their biggest moment came with the release of Bridge Over Troubled Water, a multiple Grammy winner widely regarded as one of the best folk records ever made. It was the best performing record of the year in 1970. In 1968, they appeared in Iowa City for the premiere of The Graduate, exhaustedly signing photographs and calling the film lousy at first, According to an interview with Times Democrat reporter Sherry Ricciardi, published in April of 68, asked about their plans for the future, Simon and Garfunkel told the reporter they just wanted to go home to go home to New York. Garfunkel said that someday he hoped to quit music altogether and become a math teacher. Simon said he wanted to keep writing, expanding his musical palette. And after the turn of the decade, that's exactly what they did. By 1972, Garfunkel taught high school geometry in Connecticut, and Simon prepared to release his worldly debut all-solo album. Though eventually Garfunkel came back to music, and Simon came back to the Quad Cities, last appearing here in 2011 with a solo show, solo show at the Mark. But for the local folk rock fans, it's a blessing that Simon and Garfunkel were once here. On page A3, one-time oil shop gets an iconic look. Bettendorf native opening drive through coffee shop. This is written by Gretchen Teske. There's only one word to describe a former oil change shop turned drive through coffee and energy bar. Iconic. Bettendorf's newest business, Iconic Energy Bar, plans to open in March at 2777 18th Street from 5 a.m. until 8 p.m. on weekdays and 6 a.m. until 8 p.m. on the weekends. The building was home to a Jiffy Lube, but sat vacant after the business closed three years ago. Owner Aiden Singh decided it would be the perfect place for an indoor drive through a Bettendorf native, Singh began his entrepreneurial journey in high school by cleaning cars. After high school, he moved to Des Moines where he helped start a coffee shop before moving back to his hometown to start his own. The 23-year-old had the idea to open a coffee shop for a few years. Finding the right building, he said, was the problem. After a few options fell through, his real estate agent suggested the building adjacent to the Cumberland Square Shopping Center where businesses like Goodwill and Harrington's Pub already bring in traffic. At first, everyone said an oil change shop would be an oil change shop, he said. With the infrastructure already in place to pull in, though, he thought he could make it work again, but for coffee. A major problem he was going to face was stacking or cars piling up and spilling into the street. It's a big issue drive through businesses face when the cars extend lines into the city streets. Another problem, he said, is quickly and efficiently getting people through the line. Singh said he studied how other businesses got around that problem and adopted a similar technique by creating an escape route with an extra lane that would extend around the building. Once the weather warms up, employees will greet customers at their car with tables or excuse me, tablets, to take their order, then bring their drinks right to them. 
When you have your drink, feel free to take the exit lane, he said. That way, we're not holding you, you up and you don't have to pass through the building or wait for someone in front of you. For those not driving, Iconic will have a walk-up window that allows customers to order their coffee, smoothies, tea, and energy drinks from. With it being a half mile from Bettendorf High School, Singh is hoping to maximize foot traffic. The walk-up window is attached to the 318-square-foot space that was formerly the manager's office and waiting room for Jiffy Lube customers. Singh transformed it into a kitchen space set up for maximum efficiency. Near the door that connects the kitchen to the garage is the drive through window for customers. Orders will be taken there in person and the drink made in clear sight of the customer. The idea behind it is I'm trying to be more interactional and less transactional, he said. There will be one-on-one -on -one communication at the window. I'm actually going to be physically taking to, talking to you and taking your order. So far, Singh has assembled a team of about 18 people, primarily high school and college students. Helping people around his age get a head start financially was important to him, and that translates in the pay. Employees start at $12 an hour and are all on a bonus system, he said. Tips are welcome if customers would like to leave them, but employees will never ask for them. Instead, he has implemented standards like a clean kitchen and clean bays that can translate to extra cash in their pockets if kept accordingly. The customer service will translate to delivery of drinks as well, he said. The second garage bay will be used for mobile orders where customers who ordered online will be able to drive up and have their drink brought to their window instead of having to wait in line. That feature will roll out this summer, he said. No matter which bay they are in, customers driving in will not recognize the inside as a former oil change shop. The walls are painted white with a honeycomb light fixture on the ceiling, accenting the space. Heaters hang from the ceiling to heat the garage space, allowing drivers to be comfortable in the winter when they drive in and roll down the window. The open floor bays where mechanics would work on cars from underneath have been completely covered to allow drivers to feel comfortable pulling in. That downstairs space that once held oil, parts, and supplies is now unrecognizable. The ceiling has been triple enforced and lined with shelves to hold syrups and other products for the shop. Every inch of the shop, from the lanes to the floors and down to the name, has been thought through, Singh said. After months of workshopping names, there was only one word that made sense. Once everything started coming together, it really clicked, he said. We want to be the most iconic coffee shop that you've ever seen. Here's a couple stories on the local page. This one's called Rifle Stolen from County Patrol Auto. Thomas Geyer wrote this, a life... A rifle belonging to the Rock Island County Sheriff's Department was stolen early Saturday after someone smashed the window of a, par a marked patrol vehicle and took the case containing the weapon, the authorities said. Sheriff Darren Hart said the hard rifle case that was taken contained a Rock River Arms LAR-15 rifle and loaded magazine. Moline police responded to a report of a burglary at 7 a.m. Saturday involving a marked Rock Island County Sheriff's Patrol vehicle. The vehicle was parked in the driveway at the home of an off-duty sheriff's deputy. Someone smashed the near cargo hatch, rear cargo hatch, near window that allowed them to access to the interior storage compartment where the rifle was stored. 
The Moline Police Department is conducting the investigation with assistance from Rock Island County Sheriff investigators. Anyone with information about this incident is asked to call the Moline Police Department 309-797-0401 or the Rock Island County Sheriff's Department 309-558-3614. Anonymous tips can be made to Crime Stoppers of the Quad Cities at 309-762-9500. And here's a story uh, written by uh, Jeremy Duffy. Leave no trace with outdoor recreation, it says. After getting 25 inches of snow over the course of a week last month, all but the remaining piles and parking lots are gone. And what appeared to be enough snow to last us into the summer months, Mother Nature turned up the heat and melted it all away. It sure feels like spring is starting already, but we all know that March and April might provide the harsh reality that we're just living in fall spring right now. With the rapid melt over the last few weeks, our local trails have dried up and are in really good shape. I've been out on different trail networks recently, and I'm amazed at how great of shape they are all in. Normally in February, we're at least dealing with muddy conditions and more than likely a bit of snow still packed on the trails. With drought-like conditions leading into our winter months, our soil was ready for the rapid melt. Without the spring bloom happening, our trials are eerily similar to what we encounter in late April, early May. One thing that's been noticeable since the snow has melted is the fact that there is plenty of trash on the roads and trail networks. For many of us who recreate outdoors, we follow Leave No Trace. In short, you, pa you pack out what you pack in, and if you see something that's out of place, try and pick it up, pick it or pack it out, I mean. The conservation and respect of the lands that allow us to exercise, unwind, or even just getting fresh air are under enough pressure from external sources that we don't need to add to it. When we add in people, leaving trash behind or not respecting the lands, it drives less enjoyable environment for those who come after. Plastic bottles, stickers, and dog poop bags strewn along the side of the trail are an eyesore. For many local trail networks, there are limited resources available for cleanup, and even then, that time could be spent on more important work than picking up someone else's trash. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following Leave No Trace principles to help keep our lands pristine. With these warmer temperatures and dry trail networks, it's a great time to explore our trails early in the season. Taking some runs off road this early in the season only helps build strength and stability that's sure to pay off as we get closer to race season. Thank you, Doug. Here's another coffee-related article and under the best things I drank this week heading. It's written by Gannon Hannevold, and it's entitled Coffee House Cafe, A Perfect Sibling Stop. Best thing I drank this week? Wait, that doesn't sound right. I can explain. My older sister flew to the Quad Cities from Colorado this weekend to visit, and I was determined to give her a perfect first QC experience. We had crepes at Le Mekong, omelets at Flip's Pancake House, pizza at Bad Boys, and sushi at Oshibachi Grill. She got the best thing I ate this week, speed run, and loved it. Between meals, we visited another favorite local spot of mine, Coffee House Cafe and Goods, on the northern end of the village of East Davenport. 
While they do have great bagel sandwiches and pastries, what really keeps me coming back is the coffee and the atmosphere. So given that just about every other spot I showed my sister had been featured in this column, it's only fair I add Coffee House to the list. The Dish Classic Latte Flight One thing about me, I don't really do straight coffee. It gets my heart too jittery and my head too anxious and I end up getting less done instead of more. But I am absolute sucker for lattes. Before I got an espresso machine this Christmas, I spent an unreasonable percentage of my expendable income on iced lattes every week. But now that I can make espresso at home, going out to get a latte is more of an event than a necessity. That's what makes Coffee House's signature latte flights perfect. It's not just a beverage, it's a whole experience. They have various options, the classic, the chai, and the mystery are staples, but Coffee House also has rotating seasonal options like Harry Potter-themed sorting hat flight or the holiday-themed naughty and nice flights. I like to stick to the classic, a selection of four flavored lattes served hot or iced with your choice of milk. The classic flavors are hazelnut, white mocha, vanilla, and caramel. It's an ideal order for when you want to make a whole day of your visit to Coffee House because it takes a while to nurse four mini lattes and for my veins to produce process four shots of espresso. The coffee itself is delicious. It's on the sweeter side for sure and I opt for oat milk which makes it even sweeter. The vanilla is my favorite because it's the most subtle. It's a classic for a reason. Though I'm constantly surprised by the white mocha I'm not a chocolate lover, but Coffee House's spin on it is impressively smooth. If you're a Nutella fan, you'll probably like the hazel latte, hazelnut latte, and you can never go wrong with caramel. Moving from one flavor to another over the course of a few hours is perfect if you're indecisive like me. The price, $14. The price tag is a little tough to swallow, but the coffee house flights are roughly the price of two lattes because they roughly they are the roughly the quality quantity of two lattes and a buck if you want milk substitute i imagine the cost is boosted by the presentation your lattes come on a picturesque and photogenic wooden board but there is a way to save if you were patient coffee house offers punched cards for flights and after buying five of them you'll get your sixth one for free the location village of east davenport coffee house can be found at 1315 jersey ridge road in davenport they're open from 7 a.m to 3 p.m every day with special events planned most weeks too it's a nice place to stop if you want to grab a drink and then go for a walk on the riverfront that's exactly what I did with my sister in town on this beautifully sunny day weekend. As a side note, I just want to say how much I love the naming technique in this part of town. Within a one mile radius, you can find Grilled Cheese Bar, Brew, Here's the Scoop, and Coffee House, all of which have exactly what you'd expect them to have. It's direct in a way that's very endearing. Someday I want to open a record store called Record Store, or a bookshop called We Have Books. Anyways, the ambiance full of cozy nooks. I love reading, writing, and working remotely, but all three of those things are exponentially more difficult when I'm in my own living room, so I like to go out to coffee shops, beer gardens, and bookstores to spend my time there instead. 
After six months of being a quad sidian, Coffee House is my favorite data, local daytime third place. There are board games and books that are free to grab and browse. There is a tucked away room with a selection of vinyl records and a turntable. Greenery lines almost all of the walls. Natural light is abundant, making the whole seating area feel like the inside of an igloo on a wintry afternoon. It's like Coffee House was tailor-made to fit my interests. They even often have good music on the mix. I've heard everything from underground emo to palatable radio folk, both quiet enough to make me want to unplug my headphones while I read and sip. It's almost time for obituary, so I'm going to give you just kind of a highlight of this health story that I've just been looking at. I'm a walker, and um, I know there are a lot of runners too, but I'm just going to give you the highlights to this thing. It says, put some pep in your steps. 11 ways to revitalize your running and walking workouts. Change locations is one of them. I can understand that. I do get in a rut. Set regular goals. People who choose small, incremental, achievable goals and write them down are more likely to get them done. And treat yourself. After it's all said and done, give yourself a treat. Join a club. It helps. Listen to an audio book as you're walking. I listen to music. Uh, tweak your route. Change it every once in a while, something different. Take exercise breaks. Don't keep walking. If you're tired, slow down a little bit. Enlist a workout buddy if you want partner get so get a partner with you race against yourself when you have the have achieved reset the challenge and start anew create a cue if you need help sticking to a routine schedule your run or walk around a regularly scheduled activity and combine running and walking all right now it's time to turn to the obituaries and i'll run down the pending funerals first We've got Maureen P. Mueller Bayer, age 92, of Taylor Ridge, Illinois, who passed away Sunday, February 18th, at home. Arrangements are pending at Wheeland Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Milan. Ora L. Brown, age 68, of Rock Island, Illinois, passed away Sunday, February 18th, at Unity Point Health, Trinity, Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at Trimble Funeral Home and Crematory in Moline. James Clark, age 68, of Wyoming, Iowa, passed away Sunday, February the 18th at home. Arrangements are pending at Carson's Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa. Larry Clark, age 65, of Moline, passed away Saturday, February 17th at Unity Point Health, Trinity, Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at Sullivan Ellis Mortuary Limited in East Moline. Nola K. P. Cook, age 80, of Moline, Illinois, passed away Friday, February 16th, at Hillcrest Home, Geneseo. Arrangements are pending at Sullivan Ellis Mortuary Limited in East Moline. Merrill L. Kuhn, age 94, of Towson, Towson, Maryland, formerly of Rock Island County, Illinois, passed away on Saturday, February the 17th, Arrangements are pending at Wheeland Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Reynolds. David C. Del Vecchio, or Del Vecchio, I guess, age 76 of Bettendorf, Iowa, passed away Saturday, February the 17th. Arrangements are pending at the Rungi Mortuary in Davenport. Gregory A. Dorr Sr., age 70 of Mathersville, 
Illinois, passed away Friday, February the 16th. Arrangements are pending at Trimble Funeral Home and Crematory in Moline. Gerald V. Edwards, age 78, of Makokota, Iowa, passed away Friday, February 16th at Jackson Ridge Healthcare Center in Makokota. Arrangements are pending at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Makokota. Drexel Franks, age 70, of Rock Island, Illinois, passed away Saturday, February the 17th at Genesis Medical Center in Davenport. Arrangements are pending at Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Rock Island. Richard Rich Allen Hardin, age 92, of Davenport, Iowa, passed away Friday, February 16th at Clarissa C. Cook Hospice House. Arrangements are pending at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home. David J. Johnson, age 71, of Moline, Illinois, formerly of Cambridge, Illinois, passed away Friday, February the 16th at Clarissa Cook Hospice, Bentendorf. Arrangements are pending at Stackhouse Moore Funeral and Cremation Service in Cambridge. Ruth M. Jorgensen, age 95, of Makokota, Iowa, passed away Friday, February the 16th at home. Arrangements are pending at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Makokota. Roseanne Kelly, age 74, of East Moline, Illinois, passed away Friday, February the 16th at Unity Point, Trinity Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at Van Ho Funeral Home in East Moline, Illinois. Merle G. Glossner, age 61, of Makokota, Iowa, passed away Saturday, February 17th at Jackson County Regional Health Center in Makokota. Arrangements are pending at Carson Celebration of Life Center in Makokota. Jose Javier Marquina, age 32, of East Moline, Illinois, passed away Wednesday, February the 14th at University of Iowa Medical Center, Iowa City, Iowa. Arrangements are pending at Van Ho Funeral Home in East Moline, Illinois. William Robert Mooney III, age 84, of Sherrard, Illinois, passed away February the 15th at Unity Point Health, Trinity Rock Island. Arrangements are pending at Esterdahl Mortuary and Crematory Limited in Moline, Illinois. Layla Morris, age 51, of Davenport, passed away Sunday, February 18th at her mom's home in Moline. Arrangements are pending at Rafferty Funeral Home in Moline, Illinois. Alan S. Moskowitz, age 83, of Davenport, Iowa, passed away Friday, February 16th at home. Arrangements are pending at Rafferty Funeral Home in Moline. David D. Newton, age 70, of Davenport, Iowa, passed away Sunday, February the 18th at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, Iowa City. Arrangements are pending at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home in Bentendorf, Iowa. James Peter, age 79, of Clinton, Iowa, passed away Friday, February 16th at HCR Manor Care, Harmony, Davenport, Iowa. Cremation will be directed by Mississippi Valley Cremation and Direct Burial in Moline, Illinois. M. H. Monty Polner, age 96, of New Boston, Illinois, passed away Saturday, February the 17th at Allure of Quad Cities. Arrangements are pending at Esterdahl Mortuary and Crematory Limited in Moline, Illinois. Charles L. Rader, or Roder, R-O-E-D-E-R, uh, age 85, of Davenport, Iowa, 
passed away Saturday, February the 17th, at Bickford Cottage, Davenport. Arrangements are pending at Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport, Iowa. Dennis Scott, age 70, of Maquoketa, Iowa, passed away Saturday, February the 17th, at home. Arrangements are pending at Carson's Celebration of Life Center in Maquoketa. David L. Spilger, age 67, of Adalissa, Iowa, passed away February the 16th. Arrangements are pending at Henderson Barker Funeral Home in West Liberty, Iowa. Othell Dewey Steele, age 86, of Rock Island, Illinois, passed away Saturday, February the 17th at home. Arrangements are pending at Whelan Presley Funeral Home and Crematory in Rock Island, Illinois. And Angela R.S. Thomas, age 54, of West Branch, Iowa, passed away Sunday, February the 18th at Crestview Specialty Care, West Branch, Iowa. Cremation will be directed by Cremation Society of the Quad Cities. And Ronald Wayne Prohl, P-R-O-E-H-L, 72 years old, Davenport, passed away Tuesday, the February 6th at Genesis East Medical Center. Per his request, cremation rites will be accorded. There will be no services. Online condolences may be left at rungimortuary.com. Ron was born May 16, 1951, in Illinois, the son of Alfred and Violet Prohl. He received his bachelor degree in diesel technology from Scott Community College. He married Catherine Reese Sass on July 8, 1989. She preceded him in death April 13 of 2022. He was a self-employed diesel mechanic for many years before his retirement. He was an avid outdoorsman and loved hunting, telling jokes, often the same ones. Family, Weenie, Roast, and his beloved dogs, Hobo and Harry. Those left to honor his memory include his children, Jade, spouse Brian Burkholder, Cord, spouse Tracy Sass, Rhonda Snyder, Blith, Blythe, uh, spouse Sean Bozen, Misty, spouse Jeff Leach, all of Davenport, and Ronnie Poe, uh, Andalusia, Illinois. Nineteen great grand I'm sorry, nineteen grandchildren, eight great grandchildren, brothers Jerry, spouse Sherry Prohl, and Billy, spouse Denise Prohl, both of Illinois, sister Susie, Tennessee, several nieces and nephews, and his dog, Hobo and Harry. In addition to his parents and wife, he was preceded in death by his sister, uh, by a sister, Dolly, and a grandson, Austin. Randy Bloomingdale uh, 63 years old of LeClaire, Iowa, passed away Friday, February 16 at Genesis Medical Center, East Campus, Davenport. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday evening, February 21, at McGinnis Chambers Funeral Home, Bettendorf. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday morning, February 22 of 24 at the funeral home. Burial will be at Glendale Cemetery, LeClaire, Memorials may be directed to the family to be used for a future contribution in memory of Randy. Randy was born on March 8, 1960 in Albert Lee, Minnesota, the son of Tommy and Eileen Schroeder Bloomingdale. He graduated from Pleasant Valley High School in 1979 on April 20, 20 uh, 2005. Randy was united in marriage to Wendy Asmus McKnight. Prior to his retirement in 2023, he worked for the city of Davenport as a sewer equipment operator for 22 years. Randy loved spending time in his yard and took pride in keeping it well maintained. 
Those left to honor his memory are his wife, Wendy Bloomingdale of Leclerc, his children, Shelby, spouse Veronica Bloomingdale of Davenport, James, Michael, spouse Alex Larson of Davenport, Allison, spouse Jason McKnight Griebel of Leclerc, and Charles, spouse Julie McKnight of Bettendorf. Seven grandchildren, siblings, less, spouse Jolene Bloomingdale of Keister, Minnesota, Luann, spouse Eric Waters of Davenport, Joyce, spouse Tom Canood, or Kundi, K-U-N-D-E of Davenport, Brent, spouse Ellen Bloomingdale of Bettendorf, and Todd, spouse Teresa Bauer, Bloomingdale of Schofield, Wisconsin. Numerous nieces and nephews and his two beloved canine companions, Bailey and Molly. He was preceded in death by his parents. Online condolences may be shared with Randy's family at McGinnisChambers.com. And Charles Roeder, our last one, I think we saw him earlier. This is a more detailed about him. Funeral services to celebrate the life of Charles Roeder, 85 of Damport, will be 10 a.m. Friday, February 23rd at the Halligan McGee DeVries Funeral Home. Burial will be in the Rock Island National Cemetery, Arsenal Island with military honors. Visitation will be held from 4 until 6 p.m. Thursday, February 22 at the funeral home with additional visitation from 9 a.m. until the time of service Friday. Memorials may be made to the American Legion Post Number 26. Chuck died peacefully Saturday, the 17th of February at Bickford Cottage in Davenport. Charles Lloyd Roeder was born August 17, 1938 in Maquoketa, a son of Kenneth and Florence Burkert Roeder. Chuck grew up and attended school in Bellevue and Andrew and he proudly served seven years the U.S. Naval Reserves from 1956 to 1962, serving as weapons office yeoman aboard the USS Canberra, a flagship for President Eisenhower's people-to-people round-the-world cruise. Following his discharge and graduation from St. Ambrose College, Chuck started in insurance with Connecticut Mutual. He then spent the majority of his sales career with Marsh and McClellan Companies, where he held the position of executive director for a specialized insurance product. Chuck had a tremendous sense of humor and loved spending time with family and friends, enjoyed fishing, golf, was an avid fan of the Hawkeyes, Packers, and the Cubs. Those left to cherish Chuck's memory are his wife, Pamela uh, Davenport, children and spouse Randy Clark of Carmel, Indiana, John, spouse Simona Roder, uh, Lancaster, PA, PJ, spouse Kaja, K-A-J-A Widerka, New York, New York. Grandchildren Ryan Mackenzie Clark, Lauren Clark, Noel Clark, Dylan Roeder, Nathan Roeder, and Vivian Widerka. A sister, Cindy, spouse Norlin Hinky, DeWitt, and numerous nieces and nephews, and a special cousin, Connie Kinding of Davenport. He was preceded in death by his parents and sister, Joanne Henneke. Thank you, Doug. Now we'll flip over to the opinion page, and I'll read another view from the Kansas City Star entitled, Super Bowl Gunfire Must Lead to Change. Half of the shooting victims at parade were kids, yet the GOP couldn't seem to care less. Even after at least nine children were treated for gunshot wounds at Kansas City Hospital, Missouri Republicans still won't address the state's loose gun laws. And that stubborn resistance is responsible, if not outright dangerous. 
One day after a mass shooting in Kansas City left one woman dead and 22 others injured by gunfire, including a dozen under a dozen minors under the age of 16, top GOP lawmakers and Governor Mike Parsons shrugged their shoulders at the calamity. The tone-deaf reaction to the shooting from leading Republicans wasn't all that surprising. When it comes to sensible gun laws, the GOP reacts with the stubbornness of a Missouri mule, the state's official animal, and that bullheadedness was on full display. During an interview with a local radio host in Kansas City, Parson never bothered to use the word gun. He did, however, use language we all should condemn when describing the suspects. What happened yesterday with those thugs is not who we are in Missouri, Parson told the radio host Pete Mundo of KCMO Talk Radio. Dog whistle? You bet. We found it difficult to ignore Parsons' screed, which continued, you just got some absolutely, be careful what I say before I say something I'm going to probably regret, but just a bunch of criminals, thugs out there, just killing people at an incident like that and attempting to kill all those people and created such chaos that people got hurt being trampled. On X, State Senator Bill Engel, a candidate for Missouri governor, echoed Parsons' questionable talking points, erroneously writing, One good guy with a gun could have stopped the evil criminals who opened fire on the crowd immediately. Guns don't kill people. Thugs and criminals kill people. More than 800 law enforcement officials worked the Chiefs' Super Bowl victory parade, according to Kansas City Police. Not even a heavy police presence could deter these shooters from opening fire, debunking the stale good guy with a gun myth. Gun safety is not a matter of right versus left or conservative versus liberal, nor should it debate fall nor should the debate fall along party lines. When kids are seriously injured by gunfire and an innocent mother is killed, lawmakers have a duty to address ways to prevent these sort of shootings. Not in Missouri though. Here, no permit is necessary for anyone over the age of 18 to carry a concealed weapon. No training is required either. Background checks are not mandated. According to an anti-gun violence advocates, this unfettered access to guns contributed to a record number of homicides in Kansas City, 185 killings last year. Kansas City's mass shooting victims ranged from ages 8 to 47, according to Kansas City police. Half of the victims were under the age of 16. Law-abiding citizens in Missouri who own guns need not worry. No one has a right to take your firearm from you. But people under 21 should not have the right to carry a concealed handgun or rifle without the proper training, permit, or background check. And again, that came from the Kansas City Star. And here is a correction. Mother hasn't been sentenced. From a Harrop's column, Parents Who Arm Troubled Kids Finally Face Justice, which ran on the opinion pages of the Quad City Times and Dispatch Argus on Saturday, had an incorrect statement about that Jennifer Crumbly, the mother of a Michigan school shooter. The column should have stated Crumbly was convicted of four counts of involuntary manslaughter, but is not scheduled for sentencing until April the 9th. Doug? And our next opinion on the opinion page, this is written by Mark Champion, uh, who is a Bloomquist, a Bloomberg columnist and the former Istanbul bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal. 
and is headed, Navalna, Navalny was too brave to be allowed to live long in Russia. And it says, Alexei Navalny, who the Russian prison service has who the Russian prison service says died on Friday, was a man as ambitious as he was spectacularly brave, punished for actions that would have been rewarded in other societies. All of those in the West who admire Vladimir Putin for his strength and anti-liberal values should take a long, hard look, because Navalny's fate is the true face of the Kremlin's rule. Navalny was arrested countless times for political protest, poisoned with a nerve agent, and jailed, in effect, for life on charges of, in quote, extremism. In reality, he was punished for daring to oppose and expose Russia's ruling kleptocracy. He had already outlived his life expectancy, not because he was unhealthy or, at 47, old, but rather because of the abuse he was subjected to in jail. He may well have fainted on a walk at his prison camp in northern Siberia, as the prison authority said, yet it's all but certain that his death was caused by what was done to him before. As a victim, Navalny was far from unique. Boris Nemstov, one of the few genuine opposition politicians to survive long into Putin's rule, was assassinated while crossing a bridge next to the Kremlin in 2015. Numerous countries have introduced so-called magnetiski, magnetiski acts in response to the 2009 killing in prison of Sergei Magnetiski, a tax advisor who exposed a massive fraud by the same interior ministry that cooked up charges to jail him. A list of all the Kremlin critical journalists, politicians, activists, and inconvenient business people who've been shot poisoned, or fallen out of windows in Putin's Russia is long. Yet Navalny was special in that he seemed able to get under the Kremlin's skin like nobody else. Had he ever been allowed to run in an election, he almost certainly would have lost to Putin, his nemesis. He was no liberal in the woke sense of the word, early on his political activism. He went on marches with nationalists and neo-Nazis whom he saw as allies because at the time, long before the invasion of Ukraine, they also opposed Putin. What made Navalny dangerous to the Kremlin was that he had, a, had the extraordinary degree of courage needed to investigate and expose the secret wealth of the nation's most powerful men. Plus, he had a genius for using modern media to broadcast their alleged theft in a country that has no free press. Navalny was poisoned while on a plane in Russia and almost died in 2020. He was flown to Germany for treatment, where it was found that the weapon used had been a military-grade nerve agent called Novichok, which has also been used in other assassination attempts on Russian dissidents, including in the UK. Navalny's YouTube film on Kremlin corruption, entitled Palace for Putin, was made while he was in Germany recovering, yet he released it only after returning to Russia in 2021. Quote, because we do not want the main character of this film to think that we are afraid of him, end quote. As soon as he landed in Russia, Navalny was arrested, continued his activism in jail, was routinely placed in solitary confinement, and then transferred to a prison camp in northern Siberia in December. When he looked in, <coughs> excuse me, when he looked increasingly weak. Now he's dead, 
Palace for Putin was viewed more than 129 million times, and that was just the one about a vast building on the Black Sea cost, and that was just on the the one about a vast building on the Black Sea coast that the Kremlin has denied belonged to the Russian president. Then there was the expose that alleged Putin also owns a $700 million super yacht and another about vast estates Navalny tied to former President Dmitry Medvedev. Like most dissidents, Navalny was no saint, but he stood out for the sheer bravery of his decisions, above all in returning to Russia after what was clearly an assassination attempt by the state. I say clearly not just because Novichok is a chemical weapon only available to Russian state organs, but also because Navalny recorded his call to one of the men suspected of putting the poison in his underpants while he was traveling. The man confirmed that what he and his colleagues had done. Navalny cooperated in a documentary about him while in Germany. Asked by the director what message he would have for the Russian people, would he be killed? He said it should be that. Quote, evil is only able to proliferate if good people do nothing, so don't be inactive, end quote. Navalny was never that. He may not have been afraid of the Kremlin, but the Kremlin was obviously afraid of him. Cut. All right, we've just got a few short minutes to pick up some sports. I'll let you give you a rundown of what's going on on television today, sports-wise. 5.30 p.m., men's college basketball. We've got Butler at Villanova on FS1. 6 p.m. on CBSSN, we've got VCU at UMass. On ESPN at 6 p.m., Arkansas at Texas A&M. ESPN2 has Syracuse at New North Carolina State. And ESPNU has UCF at West Virginia. SEC Network has Tennessee at Missouri. Those are all 6 p.m. 7.30 p.m., UConn at Creighton on FS1. 8 p.m., Pittsburgh at Wake Forest on ACC Network. San Diego State at Utah State on CBS Sports Network. Baylor at BYU on ESPN. TCU and Texas Tech, it says uh, it's also on ESPN. I'll bet you one of those is on ESPN2 or ESPNU. And also 8 p.m. on Peacock, Maryland at Wisconsin. 9.30 p.m., San Jose State at Boise State on FS1. 10 p.m. on CBS Sports Network, it's Wyoming at Nevada. And on ESPN2, San Francisco at St. Mary's. Women's college basketball, 6 p.m., Wisconsin at Minnesota on the Big Ten Network. And at 8 p.m. on the Big Ten Network, it's Northwestern at Nebraska. And college baseball, 7.30 p.m., Kansas State at Arizona State on the Big the Pac-12 Network. Uh, one short article here. Number three, Houston defeats number six, Iowa State. Jamal Sheed had 26 points, including 20 in the second half, and number two, Houston, took sole possession of first place in the Big 12 with a 73-65 win over number six, Iowa State, on Monday night. Emmanuel Sharp added 20 for the Cougars, who won their 20th consecutive home game, the longest active streak in the country. They hold a one-game lead over the Cyclones with five games remaining in the regular season for both teams. Uh, Iowa State continued to chip away, uh, getting to the deficit down to four several times in the second half with the last coming on a three by King with 8.22 to go. 
but the Cougars scored the next four points and went back ahead by eight on a layup by Jawan Roberts with seven minutes and 18 seconds left to go in the game. That brings us to the end of the Quad City Times for today, Tuesday, February the 20th, 2024. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you for listening to Iris, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.